0: Good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show, coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas, gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's <clears throat> March 20th, 79th day of the year. 286 days remain till the year's over with. And since you all asked for it, here are the. Holidays and observances for March 20th. International Day of Happiness. World Storytelling Day. National Ravioli Day. National Macaroon Day. National Kiss Your Fiance Day. And Won't You Be My Neighbor Day. Hufflepuff Pride Day. National Proposal Day. Run out and propose to somebody. National Snowman Burning Day. March Madness, of course, and National Introverts Week. And, of course, it is National Women's History Month. All that having been said, the um, some interesting things happen on this particular date in history. In 673, Emperor Tenmu of Japan assumes the Chrysanthemum throne at the Palace of Kayomahara in Asuka. 1206, Michael IV Altorianos is appointed uh, Ecumenical Patriarch of uh, Constantinople. God speaks through him, don't you know? 1600, the Linkaping bloodbath takes place on uh, Monday, Thursday in Linkaping, Sweden. Five Swedish noblemen are publicly beheaded in the aftermath of the war against Sigismund. 1602, the Dutch East India Company is established. 1616, um, Walter, Sir Walter Raleigh is freed from the Tower of London after 13 years of imprisonment. 1760, Great Boston Fire destroys 349 buildings. 1815, after escaping from Elba, Napoleon enters Paris with an army of 140,000, a volunteer force of about 200,000. That began his 100 days rule before he got uh, defeated again, sent into exile again, and one of his close uh, associates poisoned him. Arsenic, don't you know. 1848, German revolutions of 1848, King Ludwig I of Bavaria abdicates. 1852, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin is published. It was hailed as the the greatest revelation of slavery, but she had never set foot in the South and uh, had no idea what she was writing about. But it was a good book. 1854, the Republican Party of the U.S. is organized, in Ripon Wisconsin. 1861, an earthquake destroys Mendoza, Argentina. 1883, the Paris Convention for the Protection of Industrial Property is signed. 1888, premiere of the very first Romani language operetta staged in Moscow. Romani is the language of the gypsies, don't you know? Uh, 1890, Chancellor of the German Empire, Otto von Bismarck, is dismissed by Emperor Wilhelm II. 1896, with the approval of Emperor Guangzhou, the Qing Dynasty Post Office is opened, marking the beginnings of a postal service in China. 1913, Sun Xiao Jin, founder of the Chinese Nationalist Party, is wounded in an assassination tent and dies two days later. 1916, Albert Einstein publishes his general theory of relativity. And in spite of rumors to the contrary, the theory of relativity does not state relatives of the boss get the best jobs. We think it does, and it acts that way sometimes, but it's not. 1921, Upper Silesia, Plub of the site was a public the site mandated by the Versailles Treaty to determine a section of the border between Weimar Germany and Poland. 1922, the USS Langley, exclamation, is the first U.S. Navy aircraft carrier. 1923, the Arts Club of Chicago hosts the opening of Pablo Picasso's first U.S. showing, uh, entitled "Original Drawings by Pablo Picasso." becoming an early proponent of modern art in the U.S. In 1926, Chiang Kai-shek initiates a purge of communist elements within the National Revolutionary Army of Guangzhou. In 1933, Reichsführer SS Heinrich Himmler orders the creation of Dachau Concentration Camp as chief of police of Munich and appointed uh, Theodor Eich as the uh, camp commandant. 1942, World War II, General Douglas MacArthur at Tirelli, South Australia, makes his uh, famous speech, Bergotte, the father of the Philippines, and he uttered those immortal words I came out of Bataan and I shall return. 1948, with the Magicians Union Band lifted, the first telecast of classical music in the U.S. under Eugene Normandy and Arturo Toscanini is given on CBS and NBC. 1951, Fujiyoshida, a city located in Yamanashi Prefecture in Japan, is the center of the Japanese main island of Honshu. Um, It was founded on this date in 1951. 1952, the Senate ratifies the security treaty between U.S. and Japan. 1956 Tunisia gains independence from France Uh, 1969 United Arab Airlines now Egypt Air Aleutian 218 crashes at uh, Aswan International Airport killed 100 people 1972 and the troubles the first provisional IRA car bombing in Belfast killed seven and injured 148 others in Northern Ireland 1985, Libby Riddles becomes the first woman to win the 1,135-mile Adidarod Trail Sled Dog Race. 1985, Canadian paraplegic athlete and humanitarian Rick Hansen begins his circumnavigation of the globe in a wheelchair in the name of spinal cord injury medical research. 1987, the Food and Drug Administration approves the anti-AIDS drug AZT. 1988, the uh, Ithrian War of Independence, having defeated the Nadu Command, the Arethrian People's Liberation Front enters the town of Alphabet, victoriously concluding the Battle of Alphabet. 1990, Ferdinand Marcos' widow, Imelda Marcos, goes on trial for bribery, embezzlement, and racketeering. 1993, the Trebles. Provisional IRA bomb kills two children in Warrington, England. Leads to mass protest in both Britain and Ireland. This day in 1995, the Japanese cult, Um Shinriko, carries out a sarin gas attack in the Tokyo subway. Kills 13 and wounds over 6,200. 1999, Legoland, California. The first Legoland outside of Europe opens in Carlsbad. In the year 2000, Jamil Abdullah Al Amin, a former Black Panther once known as H. Rap Brown, is captured after murdering Georgia Sheriff's Deputy Ricky Kinchen and critically wounded Deputy uh, Aldranan English. 2003, Iraqi War. The U.S., the U.K., Australia, and Poland begin an invasion of Iraq. 2006, over 150 Canadian soldiers are killed in eastern Chad by members of the rebel. Ufdc, rebel movements sought to overthrow Chadian President Idris Deby. Um. Just in 2012, at least 52 people are killed, more than 250 injured in a wave of terror attacks across 10 cities in Iraq. 2014, four suspected Taliban members attacked a Kabul Serena Hotel and killed nine. 2015, a solar eclipse an equinox, and a supermoon all occur on the same day. And that was the day to go play your lottery tickets, because you might win the big one. 2015, Syrian Civil War. Siege of Kobani. Is broken by the People's Protection Units and Free Syrian Army. Marking a turning point in the Rojava-Islamist conflict. Well, that is... Uh, you know, the extent of our um, little history segment. You know, I I keep saying, and nobody listens to me, that uh, if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. A couple of other things that just came to my attention. Pentagon study shows problems with the health of military pilots and ground crews. The uh, Elon Musk is of the opinion if Trump is arrested arrested tomorrow as he believes he's going to be by the radical D.A. in Atlanta I'm sorry in New York that um, he's a shoo-in to be president the reaction of the people is going to be unbelievable there is a interesting story about a uh, Chicago family. A squatter with a long criminal history has taken over her dead mother's home and has refused to leave since September. She uh, said she got a call from neighbors in September there had been a shooting inside the, the home that her mother left to the family after she died. When she got there the locks had been changed and there was a bullet hole in the front window. person had been shot in the apartment a guy named uh, Takito Murray. Came back from the hospital and informed everybody he now lived there and he had rights. He was a professional squatter. And apparently, that is now a new recognized um, occupation a professional squatter. You just move into somebody's empty house and take over. And of course, what is our law enforcement doing about that? Nothing. The um, interesting thing, we got banks ready to collapse. We got people's homes being taken away from them by squatters. Another lady had uh, her life savings taken by the FBI. They don't know why they did it. They just knew they did it. And we got teachers promoting anarchy and anti-capitalism. And what does our administration do? Well, you know, uh, we, we we made rules, and folks don't want to follow them. I mean, I don't know what we're going to do. You well, know, we'll see what happens with all that. We've been talking about uh, unsolved murders, and there have been a bunch of those. Now, this next story comes from Oakland County, Michigan. And the interesting thing, you know, most parents tell their children to stay away from strangers. Now, some kids have never met a stranger. They're friendly to everybody. And where I grew up, if somebody had grabbed a kid off the sidewalk, there'd have been 47 people showing up with baseball bats. But not now. Oh, no. We must remember the civil rights of the abductor. Now, this particular case is is called the Oakland County Child Killer, named after the Michigan County in which four terrifying kidnappings and murders occurred. Of course, it did panic parents throughout the Midwest. And the details as such were baffling. Two male victims bore signs of sexual assault. The two females didn't. Three were suffocated, or strangled; one died of a shotgun blast to the head. And all appeared to have been given a bath, and were discovered neatly dressed. In fact, more neatly dressed than they routinely looked. So it uh, it raised quite a number of interesting questions. Now, twelve-year-old Mark Stebbins and his older brother, Mike, regularly hung out at the American Legion Hall at uh, Nine Mile in uh, Woodward. It's about a mile from their home in Ferndale, Michigan. The Veterans Organization was a safe place for the boys to spend time, and on one snowy Sunday in February 1976, they walked to the hall to play pool. Now, after a while, Mark, who once said was a good student who liked to spend time alone, said he wanted to, go home and watch TV and it was a path he had walked many times by himself or and and with his brother but on this particular day he didn't get home and his mother called the police in a panic and while Mark Stebbins disappearance worried those who knew him it wasn't the type of case that normally drew widespread media attention I mean, there was no, none of the issues that normally um, got the big-name broadcasters involved. But that changed four days later, on February 19th, when an office worker in the nearby town of Southfield spotted his body abandoned in the parking lot. He had rope burns on his wrist, but he wasn't bound, and it appeared he'd been strangled or suffocated at least the day before. Ferndale Police Chief Donald Gary told reporters the boy's body had likely been kept on the trunk of a car before being ditched in the parking lot. Not only had he been scrubbed clean, but his fingernails had been scraped by his killer. And as the police investigated, Mark's family mourned. Months passed by, and the case slipped quietly from the headlines. December twenty sixth, nineteen seventy six, a motorist found the body of twelve year old Jill Robinson in Troy, Michigan. She'd left her Royal Oak home four days before after an argument with her mother over what to have for dinner. Now that is a real that is a topic you defend to your last breath. What you gonna have for dinner? On the surface it was tough to figure out uh, if Jill's death was related to Mark's. She died in a completely different manner. Shotgun blast to the head rather than asphyxiation. It's possible Jill was killed with a shotgun when strangulation failed to kill her. Some folks just don't have enough common sense to die. But a few striking similarities led the police to believe that there must be some kind of connection. Like Mark, Jill was described as a loner and it appears she'd been kidnapped in hell for days before she was killed. And as with Mark, she'd been fed and given water to drink while held captive. The um, And her body, like Mark's, was dumped on a day and it had snowed, helping to obscure a lot of uh, very important evidence. And in the killer's case, uh, Pace picked up. The next victim appeared just a week later, January second, 1977, after leaving a party shop just four blocks from her home in Berkeley, Michigan, which wasn't that far away from the last murder. 10 year old Kristen Melalik bought a magazine was walking along a busy thoroughfare in broad daylight when she just vanished. And because her body had been found, so re- Jill's body had been found so recently, Kristen's disappearance was treated with far more urgency than the previous one. Police helicopters swept the area and officers canvassed the neighborhood looking for witnesses and clues, and of course, found nothing. week after Christine uh, vanished, Police assumed the worst. And these fears were realized when uh, snow fell January twenty-second, nineteen 1977, 19 days after she disappeared. Mail carrier Jerry Wozni discovered her body in a ditch along a dead-end road in Franklin, Michigan. That was another town in Oakland County. He said, I saw a hand, and it scared the hell out of me. He said it appeared snow had been tossed on top of the body to make her difficult to spot Headlines in the next day's newspaper said slay, slayings terrorized the county. Detroit uh, News offered a reward of $10,000 to uh, catch the killer. In 1977, that was no s- small amount of money. Less than two months later, that terror reached the King family. March 16, 1977, 11 year old Tim asked his sister Kathy for 30 cents so he could buy candy from a drugstore three blocks from home left his home in Birmingham, Michigan at about 8.15 in the evening and skateboarded to the Hunter Maple Pharmacy. Sharp assistant uh, Amy Walter saw him leave with his candy at about 8.30 through a rear door that led to a darkened parking lot. Now, Tim, whom his parents had repeatedly warned not to talk to strangers, never got home. A blue GMC gremlin was seen parked in the lot where he was last seen. 2013, parts of a similar car were found buried in a field in Grand Blank, Grand Block, Michigan. Tim King's body was found a week later. Like the other victims, he'd been kept alive much of the time he'd been missing. Officials believed he was suffocated about six hours uh, before he was found. And while he was missing, his mother had written a letter to the Detroit News pleading for him to come home for some Kentucky Fried Chicken. That was his favorite meal, don't you know? An autopsy of the body revealed the food he had just eaten before he was killed was... You guessed it, fried chicken. His body was found in a ditch along a well-traveled dirt road in Livonia, Michigan. Skateboard was placed next to it. Like all the other victims, his body had been carefully cleaned, aside from some samples of white dog hair. Location marked a change in pattern, though, as Livonia fell in Wayne County, rather than uh, neighboring Oakland. Police and sheriff's deputies from both jurisdictions were... Dedicated to solving the case. Our witnesses came forward for the police to create a sketch of a suspect. Face that emerged belonged to a white man with dark hair, prominent nose, and thick lips. Bushy mutton chop whiskers ran down his cheeks. An accompanying psychological profile told the community we're looking for somebody between 25 and 35 years old. Well-educated and worked for a white-collar job with enough flexibility to give him the freedom to carry out his crimes. According to the Birmingham Police Chief, Jerry Tobin, we believe he appears sane 99% of the time that they thought he was probably seeing a psychiatrist. Tobin urged anybody in the medical or legal professions to come forward with any information. And the police also began to suspect that somebody was protecting, the killer was being protected by somebody close to him, maybe a relative or a friend. Birmingham Police Chief Jerry Tobin uh, said that no individual could have kept four children for varying lengths of time without somebody knowing about it. It's probably because of that suspicion that family members of the victims were stonewalled by the investigators. And this, of course, was frustrating for Tim's parents, especially who'd been very cooperative in humoring investigators' hunches early on. Detectives had helped it hoped and believed that whoever was holding Tim hostage would react badly to the parents' emotional plea, so the couple agreed to conceal their grief and keep their tone positive during the news conferences. Kings felt they'd received a little cooperation from the authorities in return. A special task force that sounded the case was disbanded in December 78, and they subsequently sued the county prosecutor's office, hoping to force it to release more evidence from the case, and No, the problem is, police do not like to admit they don't have all the answers, and quite often, they're friends of the person they're supposed to be looking for. Twenty twelve, that office did release six thousand pages of case documents. However, the king's request that officials be forced to release more evidence was denied by the Michigan Supreme Court in twenty seventeen. After all, according to the judges, none of their kids were involved, so they didn't care. Over the years, police have received over 18,000 clues and leads from the public. Two other reductions have been linked to the Oakland child killer case. Cynthia Cadu, 16, battered to death, and Jane Allen, 14, killed by carbon monoxide poisoning. 2012, an unidentified investigator known as Bob claimed that uh, there were between 11 and 16 victims, and the killings were connected to satanic rituals. Of course, these claims were dismissed owing to a lack of evidence. A little official information has meant that rumors have abounded over the identity of the Oakland County child killer. few names were publicly tied to the case. Among the first was David Norberg, an auto worker who drove a car that looked similar to the one described near Tim's abduction site. Norberg had been suspected of killing two girls in the late 70s, but he was uh, not convicted. After he died in a car crash in 81, his wife found a small silver cross inspi- inscribed with the name Christine. She remembered a girl who had been the Oakland County child killer's third victim and showed the cross to Christine's aunt, who said it was identical to one uh, Christine had worn at the Romeo Peach Festival shortly before her death. Police exhumed Norberg's body in 1999 to... See if his DNA matched evidence from the case, but um, unfortunately the results didn't tie him to the murders. Some investigators claimed that there's no way that Norberg, a heavy drinker, could have been able to lure stranger, danger-conscious children into his car and he'd largely been dismissed as a suspect. There's still the question of the cross, though. Convicted pedophile named Christopher Bush was on... uh, Short list for the King family and Erica McAvoy, Christine's half-sister. He was the son of a wealthy auto executive and lived in the area at the time. He was questioned soon after Tim's death and admitted to investigators he was a pedophile. also drove a car and looked similar to one spotted at one of the abductions. Now The investigators wanted to keep him in jail, but um, L. Brooks Patterson, who headed the prosecutor's office during the killings, uh, released him as part of a plea deal. In November 1978. Just a few months later, Bush died by suicide in his home. A drawing of a screaming boy that resembled Mark Stebbins was found pinned to the wall. One of the suspects was James Gunnels, a 51-year-old man connected to Christine's murder through DNA evidence. 2012, investigators revealed that a strand of hair found on Christine was a microchondrial match for Gunnels, meaning it could have come from him or somebody on his mother's side of the family. At the time the crime was committed, Gunnels was no more than 16. He'd been raped by Bush. 2012, Gunnels went with the King family, insisted he didn't know anything about the crimes. 2012, another tenuous DNA test produced a suspect named Arch Sloan, who was serving a life sentence for the rape of a 10-year-old boy in 1983. The hair found in his 1966 Pontic Bonneville, matched the hair found at both Mark and Tim's crime scenes. Now, the Harewood and Sloan's investigators believe it belonged to an acquaintance of his. DNA tests in 2013 also quashed allegations that notorious civil John Wayne Gatesy was the murderer. Well, when the King and Milet's family zeroed in on Bush as a suspect, Mark Stebbins' family filed a wrongful death suit in 20, 2007 against uh, Theodore Lamborghini, a man who, like Sloan, was in uh, prison for life on assault convictions. David Binkley, a lawyer representing the Stebbins family, said his clients didn't think Lamborghini uh, acted alone and hoped the suit would help uh, uncover more information. He pointed to Lamborghini's refusal to take a polygraph test despite being offered a massively reduced prison sentence if he answered questions about the Oakland County child killings. According to Binkley, wouldn't you deny him being the Oakland County child killer? Despite the family's suspicions, the suit was dismissed in 2008. But the presiding judge left room for it to be refiled and more evidence because you come to the light. Tim's father, Barry King, has replayed time and again how he talked to his son after the community learned of Christine's death. He said all his kids remember him telling Tim if anybody tries to pick you up, drop anything, you've got in your hands and run and scream. Part of the tragedy to me is once Tim got into the car, he knew what would happen, and that was the worst part of it all. 2013, the King family produced a documentary called Decades of Deceit, detailing what they perceived as the bungled investigation into their son's murder. As long as the mystery of the Oakland County child killer case remains unsolved, the King's and the other victims' families remain haunted by events that happened well over 40 years ago. Still searching for answers always seem to be just out of reach. You know, part of the problem is law enforcement has their own agenda quite often. And even if you show them the evidence, in the case I'm dealing with right now, where we've got the guy making no bones about the fact he committed fraud, he's a nice guy. He wouldn't do that. Unfortunately, nice guys do do that. But, you know, the local law here has her own preconceived notions about things. Now we're going to talk about uh, the Dorothy Jane Scott murder. She'd been receiving crank calls for months before she was abducted. Then a mysterious man began calling her parents, boasting he'd kidnapped her. Well... This story began with a telephone call. Dorothy Jane Scott picked up the receiver with a degree of reluctance and wariness that had recently become habitual. And a male voice said, When I get you alone, I'll cut you up into bits so nobody will ever find you. Well, she thought the voice sounded somewhat familiar, but she couldn't place it. She'd been getting alarming phone calls from an unidentified man for months. Not only did he threaten her with violence, he'd also seek to intimidate her by claiming to be watching her. Sometimes he was even able to state where she was and what she was doing in great detail. On one occasion, she got a phone call from a man telling her to take a look outside. He said he'd let her, left her a gift, and laying on her car was a single dead rose. Understandably, she was on high alert, and turns out she ever had every reason to be. Before these calls began to consume her every waking moment, she lived a routine and normal life. She was a 32-year-old single mother living in Stanton, California, with her aunt and four-year-old son, Shanti. Dorothy was separated from Shanti's father, Dennis Terry, of Fairgrove, Missouri. And during the week, she worked as a back office secretary at the jointly-owned uh, Swinger's psych shop and custom John's head shop in Anaheim while her parents looked after Shanti. After she finished work, she'd pick her son up and drive back home and cook dinner. Then she and her son would watch TV or read a book together before bedtime. Now, she was a devout Christian, very seldom dated, referring a quiet night with her son to going out and having a good time lived a very predictable life, but it was a life she had carved out for herself and Shanti. She was known by everybody who knew her to be a hard-working and compassionate woman who cared deeply about her family. Well, when it became clear that the disturbing calls weren't going to stop anytime soon, she actually took up karate. She considered buying a gun, but decided against it, fearing that Shanti might find it and harm himself. Now that is a Stupid reason. Because if the kid is responsible at all and he's told don't touch. I grew up in a house where around guns and I didn't touch one until one was handed to me. Well, she was determined to take steps to protect herself and her son should her stalker prove generally dangerous. May 28, nineteen eighty. She dropped shanti off with her parents and drove to work for an employee meeting. And during the meeting, a colleague of hers, Conrad Bostron, mentioned he'd been feeling ill and showed Dorothy an inflamed wound on his arm. Dorothy urged Conrad to go to the UCI Medical Center to get it checked out and offered to take him there in her car. Another colleague, Pam Head, accompanied Dorothy and Conrad. and En route to the Medical Center, she stopped at her parents' house to check on her son and inform him she'd be late getting home. And while she was there, she changed her black scarf for a red scarf. Well, Conrad was examined by medical staff who found that his feelings of nausea and the wound on his arm had been caused by a, uh, the bite of a spider. Dorothy and Pam sat in the waiting room watching TV and reading magazines while Conrad uh, got treatment for, uh, for the spider bite. About 11 p.m., Conrad was discharged and were ready to leave the hospital. Dorothy said she'd get the car from the parking lot and meet him out front after they had Conrad's prescription fill. Conrad and Pam briefly waited at the front of the building for their friend to drive up, and when she didn't show up, they decided to walk over to the parking lot. Well, then out of nowhere, Conrad and Pam saw Dorothy's white 73 Toyota station wagon speed out the parking lot, make a fast right turn around the corner, and race away from them. Headlights were on high beam, so they couldn't catch a glimpse of who was behind the wheel. Pam said, we waved our hands. There was no way she could have missed us. The car made a right, and we started running after it, and it sped up. Well, trying to figure out what had just happened, Conrad and Pam considered maybe it was an emergency back home. They waited two hours for Dorothy to come back. No sign ever. So they manif- they notified the uh, the UCI police, who didn't seem overly concerned. They never do. When Dorothy didn't return home that night to get her son, her father, Jacob, and another Vera called the police reporter missing. During the morning hours after her disappearance, Dorothy's burned-out car was discovered in an alley in Santa Ana. Police declared it had been deliberately set on fire, probably to destroy evidence of Dorothy. There was absolutely no sign anywhere. As an investigation into Dorothy's disappearance began, she police told their parents to keep details surrounding her disappearance private. This was a common police tactic when dealing with unsolved disappearances murders to prevent uh, possible suspects from getting information about the crimes from the media. This point particularly helps detectives weed out suspects, making false confessions. Believe it or not, every major crime has at least a dozen false confessions. Dorothy's son's uh, father was in Missouri at the time of her disappearance, and so he was excluded as a suspect. Few days later, the phone rang at Jacob and Vera's home, and a voice said, "Are you related to uh, Dorothy Scott?" And Vera, who had answered the phone, said, "Yes, I am." He said, "Well, I've got her." Then he hung up. Next week, determined not to be quiet about his daughter's disappearance any longer, Jacob called the Register newspaper. Now the Orange County Register in Santa Ana. Paper subsequently then a story on Dorothy's disappearance. Same morning, the story ran. The Register's Manning, Managing Editor, Pat Riley, got a, an ominous phone call. The voice said, She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. I killed her. Riley said the man revealed details about the disappearance that were not public knowledge. He somehow knew Dorothy was at the UCI Medical Center with a friend who'd been bitten by a spider. He also knew that Dorothy was wearing a red scarf and claimed she'd called him from the medical center. Well, Pam said that uh, that didn't happen, and said Dorothy hadn't called anybody from that that evening. She uh, did acknowledge it was a brief moment that evening when she and Dorothy weren't together. When Dorothy went to the bathroom shortly after going to the before going to the parking lot to uh, get the car. Well, they said, after a lot of years in this business, you get a feeling about people. The man that called me sounded like he was telling the truth. On the night of the murder, it's highly likely that the kidnapper followed Dorothy and worked her out to the hospital and waited by her car. Maybe seeing her going into the hospital, another man was off to drive into a frenzy. Now, the fact that Dorothy couldn't place the voice implied that... Um, that he belonged to somebody she, she had met in the past, not someone in her present life. And it was conjectured that the kidnapper was somebody Dorothy had slightly known in Missouri, who had followed her to Anaheim and discovered where she worked and lived. Alternatively, her kidnapper could have been a customer at one of the shops where she worked. Director worked in the back office of both shops and had minimal contact with customers. Nevertheless, the kind of alternative lifestyle shop she, shop she worked in could have attracted some unusual characters. For long, torturous years, Jacob and Vera Scott sporadically got taunting phone calls uh, after a phone call. These mostly came when Vera was home alone. Colin clearly knew... Uh, a lot of information about Dorothy and new details about her disappearance that were never publicly released. This left Dorothy's parents convinced the killer was the same person who had harassed Dorothy and then kidnapped her. Police attempted to track the phone calls by tapping Scott's phone. However, no time did the mysterious caller remain on the line long enough for investigators to be able to trace the call. These persistent calls uh, took their toll on the Scott family. According to Jacob, this far down the road, if we can just get the body, if that's what he's done with her, maybe we could go on and live a normal life. Some kind of times the, cap, uh, the caller claim he was holding Dorothy captive and she was still alive. Other times he'd laugh and tell him he'd killed her. Call stopped after Jacob Scott instead of Vera actually answered the phone. That seemed to uh, take the wind out of the caller's sails. August 6, 1984, Jacob and Vera's worst fears are confirmed when a subcontractor for the Pacific Bell came across uh, human remains while preparing to lay cables under the Santa Ana Canyon Road. He discovered a human skull, a pelvis, an arm, and two thigh bones. Alongside the human remains was a woman's wistrotch as well as a turquoise ring. You know, Dorothy's mother claimed that her daughter's wistrotch had stopped at 12.30 a.m. May 29th a little over an hour after she vanished. Remains were transported to the Orange County Coroner's Office where they were identified as those of Dorothy Jane Scott by Dr. Robert Kelly through her uh, dental records. According to uh, Kelly, eight molars were present. They matched exactly with uh, her dental records. Pieces of jewelry that were found with the remains were identified as belonging to uh, Dorothy and days later it was publicly announced she was a homicide victim. But due to the severe deterioration of the bones, the cause of her death could not be determined. According to police, the mysterious caller had tormented both Dorothy and her parents Was the same man who abducted and murdered her. While it's relatively common for killers to uh, reach out to law enforcement or the media to get recognition and publicity for their crimes, it's somewhat rare for the killer to contact and torment the family members of the victim. Behavior indicates that Dorothy's killer was a sadistic individual who uh, gained satisfaction from inciting fear. Well, after the news of the grim discovery circulated throughout the city, Jacob and Vera got one last phone call. The caller said, Is Dorothy home? And well, that was the last call the killer ever placed to Dorothy's parents. Now, don't only did to get away with murder. He also inflicted psychological torture on both Dorothy and her parents. And despite numerous hypothetical explanations for the case, no suspects that were named in Dorothy Scott's killer remains unidentified. It's um, interesting to note. Now, she was kidnapped in 1980, body found in 1984. Police couldn't even determine when She was actually killed. Now, if this had happened in Vegas with uh, Grissom and his CSI people, they could probably have known what time of day she was killed. But as one person commented, it's not every crime that can be solved in an hour with time out for commercials. And that's true. Well, let's talk about the case it's been referred to as death at the drugstore. In September 1982, after taking the normally harmless drug Tylenol, people in Chicago started dropping dead. Well, it's, uh... Yeah, Mary Kellerman woke up on Wednesday morning in 1982. Feeling a bit under the weather, her parents did what many do when hearing sore throat complaints. They gave her extra drinks. How long know to ease the pain before it was time for her to head off to school in the Chicago suburb of Elk Grove Village, Illinois. She went in the uh, into the bathroom and closed the door. Her uh, father heard a sudden loud thump. Paramedics tried to save Mary, but nothing helped. She was pronounced dead by ten a m She was twelve years old. Across town, a 27-year-old postal worker named uh, Adam Janus woke up sick enough to call in and uh, say he wouldn't be under work. Picked up his uh, kids from morning preschool and stopped by a pharmacy in another Chicago suburb to get some medication. Fixed his children lunch and prescribed himself two Tylenols and a nap. Minutes after taking the Tylenols, he collapsed in his kitchen. Medics suspected a heart attack despite his young age and good health. Nobody could have known that Mary and Adam's deaths were tragically linked despite the two having never met. They'd be the first of seven victims killed by extra-stiric Tylenol capsules poisoned with potassium cyanide. Devastated family members gathered in mourning at Adam Janice's home man's younger brother, 25-year-old Stanley, felt chronic back pain flaring up. and Stanley's 19-year-old wife, Teresa, had a headache brought on by the stress of the uh, that heartbreaking day. So the couple both swallowed some Tylenol from Adam's uh, bathroom cupboard. Stanley collapsed shortly after that, and Teresa then uh, collapsed as well. Now, Thomas Kim, medical director of the Northwest Community Hospitals Intensive Care Unit, had been the one to sign Adam's uh, paperwork indicating he'd suffered a heart attack. He was about to go home when he heard that more members of the Janus family were being rushed to his unit. Kim later told reporters of his shock at these sudden developments. He'd met Stanley a few hours before. He said, I've been talking to this six-foot healthy guy. When he heard that Stanley's wife was also dangerously ill, he knew he was dealing with something far more sinister than a mere heart attack. That same day that Mary Kellum and Adam Janice died, which was September 29, 1982, 27-year-old Mary Lynn Reiner suffered the same fate. It was 3.45 in the afternoon. Mary Reiner had given birth just days earlier and took some Tylenol. She collapsed and died shortly after that. When investigators uh, searched the Janice House, another woman, 31-year-old Mary McFarlane, told her co-workers at an Illinois bell shop in Lombard she would have had a headache and went into a back room to take some Tylenol. She collapsed within minutes and died. In hindsight, it's easy to see Tylenol as a common thread. However, for the investigators at the time, the use of this over-the-counter medication was so commonplace it didn't jump out as the cause of death. But Dr. Kim realized that uh, the victims all showed symptoms of potassium cyanide poisoning, and that included abdominal pain, dizziness, and heart failure. Cyanide robs the heart and nerve cells of oxygen. muscle seize up, and the body convulses, and the heart rapidly weakens until it stops completely. Blood tests later confirmed Kim's diagnosis, and as he later reported, he paced his office trying to work out how these... Disparate people had all been exposed to the same toxin. Well, by the end of Wednesday, barely 12 hours after Mary Kellerman was pronounced dead, two suburban firefighters who had been monitoring chatter on the fire radios they kept in their uh, homes started comparing notes on the phone. They shared their theories with Dr. Kim, who knew that Janice had taken Tylenol but had known about the other victims. The authorities retrieved the red and white bottles from all the victims' homes realizing. realized they came from the same lot and shared expiration dates. Nicholas an investigator for the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office, had studied cyanide in a college biology class. He and Chief Medical Examiner Edmund Donahue uh, were discussing the murders over the phone when Donahue remembered that cyanide had a distinctive almond smell. Pisholson opened the bottles and he said, I poured them out nothing looked out of the ordinary. Everything was capsules. But as I was pouring them out, I could tell there was a strong smell of almonds. And I opened the second bottle, and I said, You know, the first one smells like the second one. Almonds. The lab tests confirmed that whoever was behind the tampering had made a gun- gunless game of Russian roulette. In each bottle, a handful of the capsules had been emptied and replaced with a lethal dose of cyanide. Between 5 and 7 micrograms of cyanide is fatal and the contaminated capsules contained as much as 65 milligrams of the poison. Several thousand times more than the fatal dose. People who consume these capsules typically collapse within minutes. Well, my Thursday, just one day after the first death, the media were warning all of Chicago and soon all the country about the Tylenol connection. Chicago police worried that residents might miss the news and went through the streets broadcasting the message over loudspeakers. Investigators for the FDA warned consumers to avoid binding Tylenol not to take uh, any they had in their house. Pharmacy owners pulled the drug off their shelves, and Johnson and Johnson's, the parent firm for Tylenol maker McNeil Consumer Products Company, offered refunds to panicked customers. Well. McNeil officials ruled out tampering during production. The company routinely kept a random sample of pills from every lot produced, and they tested the lot in question, MC-2880, expiration date April 1987. Now, they did it after the deaths, of course, and McNeil spokeswoman, uh, Elsie Beamer, said they were clean. is finding other authorities to believe that somebody in Chicago had bought the Tylenol bottles, legitimately taken them home, tampered with the capsules, and, and quietly put them back on the shelves throughout the city. Unwitting uh, cons- customers had bought them, little realizing when they paid for their simple bottle of headache medicine, they were sealing their, their loved one's fate. Meanwhile, the body count continued to grow. On Friday, October 1st, 35-year-old Paula Prince was found in her Chicago apartment. She'd last been seen in the Walgreens on North Wells Street on Wednesday, just after the flight attendant had landed in O'Hare from Las Vegas. Surveillance photos showed her buying a bottle of Tylenol at about 9.30 that night. Had no way of knowing that uh, across town, doctors were on the cusp of tying tainted Tylenol capsules to a spate of sudden deaths. Prince died soon after taking the pills, but her body wasn't discovered for two days. His sister was supposed to meet her for dinner, and uh, Paula Prince didn't answer her phone. A uh, friend who fell a flight attendant made that report. Uh, her name was Joan Ahern. According to Richard Brezick, superintendent of the Chicago Police Department, Paula Prince had gone to the bathroom to remove her makeup and pop the meds while in there. She said to he said the Tylenol bottle was still sitting open on the vanity. Took it to the bathroom. By the time she got to the threshold of the door, she was dead. Well, as panicked as Chicago was, the rest of the nation could take comfort knowing the attack appeared to be isolated. Until it wasn't. A few days into the high profile investigation, news spread that other victims were falling ill nationwide from various poisons, including rat poison and hydrochloric acid. authorities. and Investigating and found these incidents were caused by opportunistic copycats. It seemed that anybody with a grudge was jumping aboard the pill-tainting bad wagon. Some even uh, branched out to newer methods, hiding shot pins and Halloween candy, and leading some communities to ban trick-or-treating altogether. The FDA tallied more than 270 different incidents of copycat tampering. Well, as soon as the method and means were pinpointed in the Tylenol poisoning case, the police expressed confidence the perpetrator would be swiftly apprehended, but that didn't happen. Five days after the deaths began, when the tally reached seven, Illinois Attorney General Tyrone Fauner announced that the police were searching for a man who had been arrested in August for shoplifting Tylenol. Seemed a promising lead on the surface, but uh, finally tempered public expectations. He said, "We're not quite sure what to think sometimes people steal anything they may have just been stealing Tylenol in order to steal it shoplifter's story made big headlines but was quickly discounted turned out he'd been behind bars since his august arrest it is one of several fruitless leads that were uh, pursued
1: investigators
0: also sought to interview disgruntled employees with both johnson and johnson and mcneil took notes on tips about suspicious-looking customers, and one pharmacy employee was arrested after police got a tip he kept cyanide in his house. Well, the man was eventually cleared after the supposed cyanide turned out to be a non-toxic cleaning agent. More than 100 investigators, including those who had helped build cases against the serial killers Richard Speck and John Wayne Gates, he joined forces to try to solve this particular mystery. Investigators weighed theories over were. More than one ca- uh, capsule tamperer hypothesis uh, suggested because some of the capsules declared they'd been modified, while the spiking of others was far better disguised. But no matter how sophisticated the investigation was, everybody came up empty-handed. Well, one of the most promising early suspects was a man named Roger Arnold, who looked alongside the father of one of the victims in a old food store warehouse. Arnold, who was 48, was arrested in October of '82 after a tip-off he had had cyanide in his home. Police invent interrogated Arnold for three days, after which they dismissed any link between him and the Tylenol deaths. Arnold considered him his life ruined, however, and wanted revenge against the secret informant. January of 1983, targeted a Chicago man he believed had directed investigators his way. Arnold shot and killed John Stanishay. 46-year-old computer consultant, father of three, who police say was never an informant. Arnold lamented the death years later, said I killed a man, a perfectly innocent person. He was in prison at the time. He made this confession over with a phone. I had choices. I could have walked away. He served 14 years of a 30-year prison sentence and died in 2008. Um, John Steneschal has been referred to by many as an eighth Tylenol victim. The most likely... Breaking the case came courtesy of uh, an extortionist. Within two weeks of the death outbreak, Tylenol's makers, Johnson & Johnson, got a letter promising to stop the killings for a million dollars. The letter immediately given to the FBI was traced to James Lewis of New York City. Lewis didn't want the money to be paid to himself, but into the account of a businessman whom he claimed had uh, swindled him and his wife. Lewis served 12 years for extortion, but he was never been tied directly to the terminal deaths. Nevertheless, he still routinely appears as a front-runner on the list of suspects, largely because nobody else has emerged to displace him. And there are certain suspicious factors. At one point in his checkered past, Lewis and his wife, Leanne, had imported pill-making machines from India, and when he and his wife had first moved to Chicago, they had lived under false names as Robert and Nancy Richardson. Well... Additionally, Lewis had once been charged for bludgeoning and dismembering a Kansas City man. His charges were dismissed after a judge ruled that Lewis's arrest and the seizure of his property was illegal. Recently, in 2009, federal authorities searched Lewis's home, hoping to discover new clues. Of course, nothing was found. 2010, Lewis published a novel titled "Poison: The Doctor's Dilemma." It concerned people dying after unknowingly drinking poison the water. Two years later, the FBI took a DNA sample from Ted Kaczynski, the man famously dubbed the Unabomber, for mailing 16 homemade bombs that killed three people and injured more than 20 others between 78 and 95. In prison since 1996, Kaczynski was on the police radar because he'd uh, lived with his uh, parents in a suburban Chicago during the Townlandall murders. Every lead led to big headlines, but of course, nothing panned out. The only solid progress ever made in the case involved packaging. Within days of the death, legislators proposed new laws requiring manufacturers to seal drug containers. Little foil seals are now commonplace, but prior to Mary Kellerman collapsing in her bathroom, all that stood between a malevolent uh, would-be tamper and a stranger's medicine was a twist-off lid and a wad of cotton. Well, Pichos, who was one of the original investigators, recently lamented the killer remains nameless after all these years. He said it's frustrating to everybody more so to, for the families who are victims. i going to put this person-to-person person behind bars. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow when, once again, you'll be listening to Ken Hudnall on the Ken Hudnall Show. Until then, have a truly great evening.